0: Welcome to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast series in which we discuss contemporary bioethics issues with Cleveland State faculty and other professionals. Hi this is Dr. Tony Nicoletti and I'm here with Dr. Mawish Ahmad from the Cleveland Clinic and we're talking in this two-part series about transplant ethics. Uh, In this part two, we delve deeper into the informed consent process and issues that arise with respect to living donors as well as transplant recipients. Let's delve a bit further into the informed consent process for living donors. As you've mentioned, there are two types of donations. There's direct donation and non-direct or anonymous donation. Can you explain a bit more about how you ensure that donors are prepared for the process? You know, what sort of process do they undergo? What kind of questions do you ask? And in fact, what are some of the special concerns that come up in terms of direct donation versus anonymous donation?
1: So even the donor evaluation is spanned out in such a way that they have multiple days of when they come in and get evaluated. That is kind of thought out to the extent that this gives them multiple opportunities to integrate information, get informed about the process, and have multiple opportunities to meet with team members who are solely looking out for the safety of the donor. And are not charged medically or otherwise with the health of the recipient in any way. So we tend to have, a, you know, built-in division of patients who are being treated by a specific physician, medical, surgical, what have you, should not be the one evaluating the donor. This way, you kind of have, you know, separation of powers in terms of um, more ability to speak up for the donor or for the recipient because those two processes are kind of kept parallel to each other rather than merging, but also because the donor understands that this part of the team belongs to me and their mandate is safety for myself. In order to make sure that this is a process that is optimal for me to engage in. Whereas the recipient's part of the team is trying to optimize the medical advantage or the medical benefit that the recipient might receive from living donation. So there's that aspect, at least at our team, can't speak for other transplant centers, how they engage in the process um, based on their resources. Um, The other aspect is that as they meet with person after person everyone gives them the same information but perhaps in a way that is different from each other. So the medical provider might give them the medical statistics and the things that they understand as most important in terms of risk, in terms of your risk of developing a hernia, in terms of risk of death, in terms of risk of having the organ fail in you and you needing a transplant if that should happen, which are some of the uh, complications that you might suffer from after living donation. So they tend to explore that and the surgeon will come in, have generally the same information for you, but will give you specifics about what that day is going to look like, how long the surgery is going to be, how much blood loss is expected, should we be expecting to give you a blood transfusion, you'll be staying in the ICU afterwards, we're going to be on the lookout for infection, we're going to be on the lookout for fevers, we're going to be in lookout for you know, your wound opening up or what have you. So all of these things are discussed by the medical people. And then ancillary and complementary to them, they also meet with the social worker who helps flesh out how outside of the OR and outside of the surgical process their life is going to look like around that time of donation. And so they talk about financial preparedness, they talk about mental preparedness, they talk about psychosocial triggers in terms of whether this is making you anxious or worried or frightened or whether you feel that The disease process of your loved one, your mother, your father, your husband, your spouse, your child is in fact subliminally influencing you in order to make, you know, certain that you go ahead and donate, yet you don't feel completely at, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. um, That has to be really tough to to sort that out. So Uh, they have, one, longer interviews, longer encounters with the living donors to make sure that the motivation that they are um, you know, thinking about is fleshed out, and we are linking them to the right pathway for them. Um, they also talk about how what caregiver uh, concerns might be, what their spouse or their child or the person who's helping them recuperate is going to have to do. Some people tend to be more active. They are kind of flinching at the prospect of spending two months downtime and being away from work because they like to be active. So we tell their caregivers, you know what, yours is the challenge to kind of rein them in to make sure that they don't overexert themselves and set back their recovery. Other times we see that people tend to be more sedentary in in their lifestyle and we want to make sure that the caregivers are prepared to help them mobilize, to take them out on walks, to make sure that they don't get depressed, to make sure that they are recovering optimally. And a million other things like travel, like lodging, like where do you stay post-donation, how do you manage your own time off if my husband is donating. So all of those nitty-gritty but essential details are kind of worked out during those um, evaluations. They also meet with um, nurses or social workers who are transplant coordinators who are your touch point person in the system who will give you all the details and will help. If you are approved as a donor, go ahead and schedule the surgery. Make sure they keep in touch with. you, make sure that there are any health details that you need to, they're done. Um, they orchestrate all your appointments, make sure you see all the relevant people in the hospital. Sometimes we are thinking that we are evaluating someone who seems very healthy on the service, And because it is a very thorough medical evaluation, we tend to have incidental findings. Sure. So they uh, let the donors know upfront that there might be some And because we are evaluating you, we tend to take those under consideration. For example, if you come in and you're 55 and you feel fit and you're running marathons, however, your heart is not doing that great. And we can see that it's medically fated to have some sort of heart disease in 5 years, 10 years, 11 years, 15, 20, whatever down the road. We want to make sure that we evaluate that thoroughly so that is not... Uh, problem at this time of surgery and is not going to cause you undue disease burden down the lane. So we want to make sure that we are not medically inconveniencing people and we are not socially inconveniencing people, not financially inconveniencing people. So they meet with a range of us at the donor evaluations in order to make sure that all those kind of ducks are in a row before they are gone ahead and evaluated. Includes CT scans. As I said, it can also include biopsies to make sure that the organ we are taking, functionally and critically down to the molecule level is behaving the way optimally it should so that we are not putting a donor under surgery and are opening a person up and, and during surgery realizing this liver, this kidney does not look healthy and we have to abort this because the other person is not, is already diseased and will not be able to fare well with this you know, transplanted organ. However, even with the finest of tests, sometimes that does happen. And so we have contingencies built in with informed consent to make sure that donors know that that could happen. Um, but generally speaking, uh, once you're thoroughly evaluated, the whole team meets and kind of comes to consensus and talks about the fact that you said this to this person, but you also mentioned this to the social worker. Maybe you felt more comfortable. Maybe there was more time. Maybe you met with myself as the ethicist and had a more casual conversation. Conversation about I would love to do this however I just got married and I have my honeymoon coming up or my son just is starting college and I need to be there for them so just kind of timing Um, financial preparedness, social preparedness. We talk about all of those things. So we then come to kind of consensus about whether we all truly individually and as a team feel comfortable with approving a donor because we want to make sure that multiple remarks that they have made to all of the team members are consistent in terms of motivation consistent in terms of not feeling pressured or coerced in any way, and we want to make sure that we are setting them up for the optimal path for recovery rather than retarding their chances anyway to recover well from this.
0: And you, I think you had said earlier, too, that even if all things are going forward with the transplant team,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the, of course, living donor at any point could decide, exactly. you know what, this is right. too much for me or...
1: Yes, so at every opportunity that every one of our clinicians, social workers, ethicists, coordinators, anyone who meets with the donor reaffirms with them and makes sure they truly understand that at any point in the valuation, any point after the valuation, any point during scheduling of the surgery, any point up till the day of the surgery itself, they can absolutely back out. The Cleveland Clinic has a policy of what we call a confidential out, meaning that they leave their reasons with us and we communicate to the recipient people that they were medically unable to donate. That essentially kind of closes the door in terms of awkward encounters between families and preserves your flexible relationships because you might have really wanted to donate. However, life circumstances might have made that impossible or the fact that you had a medical incidental finding come up and that, you know, uh, prevented you from donation. So we want to make sure that they understand that it's a door they can open. Absolutely. We have evaluated people who've gone ahead and taken that out. We have zero judgment. We want to make sure that they understand that as well, that just because they show up for evaluation, just because they got approved for evaluation, we are not judging them in any way whatsoever or are pressuring them to donate on our end simply because we've set a date in time for that to happen. Um, we want to make sure that on the day of surgery, and this is what I tell to all the people that I meet as living donor candidates, is my optimal circumstances are that on the day of surgery, both donors and recipients are 100% comfortable with what is about to happen, and they are 100% agreeable with the surgical or medical or social risk that they're taking on with this voluntary, with this very elective surgery at a time of optimal health in their life. So
0: that is interesting, the point that you made about the confidential... Uh, what, did, what did you call it? A confidential out. out. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what I thought you said. So, let's say you had a, a directed donation, mm-hmm. which is your family member, mm-hmm. and you're saying that within that process, mm-hmm. if they decide they want to get out of it, mm-hmm. Because I could see where it would be awkward if the family... Mm -hmm. Well, why did you... But it could be a medical reason, so it would not be known to anybody what the reason was. Exactly. And so... So
1: even within family structures, we want to preserve the um, right for medical confidentiality. Just as I would not go out in the hallway and shout their medical details out to random people, we wanna make sure that they feel comfortable to share whatever details they want to personally with their folks, whether they were donating to their mom or their dad or their children, but we don't want to inconvenience them socially in any way where it fractures the very relationships they were trying to build up. But we want to make sure that they understand that we would not give the details out we would just say they were medically unable to donate and leave it at that. And then we leave it to them if they feel comfortable with the recipient enough or they know them well enough or they feel confident enough that their relationship would not be uh, jeopardized in any way. They are, of course, uh, you know, free to have a conversation around what the reasons were. If they want to keep that private, then we reserve that right for privacy so that with donation or without donation, we want to make sure that the family unit is kept preserved. Uh, always at the back end, understanding, and I say this to living donors too, is that we don't close the door of opportunity for deceased donation at any point during a living donor's evaluation. So I have a f- person in front of me, the recipient that they intend to donate to, might get a call tonight saying, you have an organ available. So we keep both doors of opportunity open till the day of surgery, so until they receive a liver, until they receive a kidney. Both doors are open for the recipient. In this way, we're kind of optimizing the chances of the universe yielding an organ from whatever source available. And that is surprising for people because they're coming in from long distances sometimes to get evaluated and they're like, wait, that could still happen. And we're like, yes, that could absolutely happen. And in that moment in time, it is the recipient and their family unit's prerogative to decide whether they want to go with the deceased donor organ offered within the night, or whether they want to proceed with a living donation that we had already scheduled for. So at that moment in time, you want to preserve their autonomy to make sure that they have an unbiased decision, and that one that they can live with.
0: How do you draw the line between anonymous and directed. So how far out of an acquaintance would you allow somebody, like they heard about a family, maybe a friend of a friend, and Mm -hmm. they had been, let's say they'd been thinking about anonymous donation, but now Mm -hmm. they decide that they, uh, maybe they'll donate to this friend of the friend. Mm -hmm. How? So could they see something on TV or social media? And Mm -hmm. so they don't really know the person, but they have now decided, I want to donate to this poor or uh, meaning in their poor Mm -hmm. circumstances sadly that family specifically so how do you distinguish directed from non-directed so um
1: directed donation can be directed as long as you know whom you're donating to and anonymous donation is exactly what it sounds like it's not knowing who your organ went to at all um The way UNO's or OPTN policy dictates is that if you know whom you're donating to, then you're liable to hear how they're doing. But if you donate anonymously or in a non-directed fashion absolutely, you might never hear back from the recipient and learn who their identity was, female, male, alive or not, doing well or not, child or adult, you will probably not hear. But they do leave uh, a room for adjustment if families want to reach out, and it is the recipient's prerogative to do that. So anywhere from three, hopefully six months to, you know, afterwards of the donation, for example, Um, If I had gone ahead and done an anonymous donation, my recipient, whoever they might be, has the chance to reach out to the transplant center and say, it's been six months now, I feel much better after my transplant, I kind of wanted to reach out to the donor and let them know that I'm well. Mm -hmm. Um, The transplant center is happy to relay that message, if that's all they want to say. The transplant center is also happy to take a letter or a postcard or any missive that you might have to the donor. Um, the, The transplant center can also ask the donor if the recipient wants to have a phone conversation, wants to meet in person. So any of that contact is possible after a discrete period of a few months have passed after the donation. At that moment, then it's the donor's prerogative to either reciprocate or say, you know what? All I wanted to know is that they were doing fine. And I am not fully comfortable. It might be socially awkward. What do I say to them? I don't know them from Adam. What will they say to me? I didn't do it for the gift-giving kind of philosophy. I did it just for the help that it might serve them and that I am able to do this and I'm in good health and I don't really want to meet them. I wasn't envisioning a personal relationship. Whatever the reasons might be, both parties kind of have to come to consensus in terms of you know, unbalanced um, motivations there. And if you are the kind of person who is putting this good out into the universe and expecting absolutely no information back in return, then this is the path for you. If you were envisioning that you would be fundraising or raising awareness together or meeting them for coffee one day, we cannot promise that at all. That is purely left up to the recipient or the parents of the recipient if they happen to be a child and in which circumstances it might be decades or you might never hear back from the recipient family. So either you are okay with that, truly, truly okay with that, and that is fine with your value set or otherwise this process might not be the optimal path for donation for you. Sure. Um, it's a fuzzy line nowadays with social media and highly publicized cases, and the way our lives are shaping up with informal acquaintances, or formal acquaintances where you might go to a church, or to a temple, or to a mosque, or whatever congregation, whatever population, whatever internet community, whatever Facebook group, whatever sense of community you have that you might meet someone who needs. Um, If they are reaching out on social media, certainly people are free to call the Transplant Center and say, I heard their call for transplant. I really would like to donate to them. I want to get evaluated. So sometimes you have very highly publicized cases or you see billboards or ads taken out and people are looking far and wide to help their loved one or the recipient is looking for a donation and multiple people will call in, tens, hundreds, even thousands have known for very publicized cases to call a transplant center and you sometimes have 500 people calling for one recipient. Um, and so the transplant center will try to work through that load and make sure that they evaluate all the people that seem to have the same blood group to have the kind of body habitus and the healthy lifestyle that would help make donation a possibility sometimes that ends up panning out that you do match sometimes it ends up panning out that you do not match again we can educate you and say There's that person, but guess what? You weren't able to donate to them. There are, like, so many more that you could help, so think about that and get back to us if that's something that you want to flesh out. Um,
0: Does that sometimes occur where somebody's done it that way and then they eventually become an anonymous donor? Mm -hmm.
1: So it has happened that people have come to us and said, you know, anecdotally, that, I wanted to donate to that person. However, they ended up getting a deceased donation. But since that time in my life, I've been thinking about this and I don't have another person in mind, but I sure would like to donate. What are the possibilities here? Whom could I donate to? Some people come to us and with anonymous donation feel like this is kind of the lack of knowing is the best arbiter of my having to select a possible candidate out for myself, and the transplant center, through medical expertise, will know who is most in need, and this way I can help the person who can most benefit from my gift. So some people tend to view it that way and leave it to the transplant center's discretion in order to find someone who is possible for their kidney or their liver donation. So that too tends to happen. if, as I said, we kind of draw the line, it can be fuzzy with uh, relationships nowadays, especially with social media and internet presence. But we tend to think of um, all we tend to think of directed donation as. You know whom you're donating to, then it's directed, even if you're thrice, four times removed, even if it's a casual acquaintance and you only know their name. Sometimes people will come in and be evaluated to donate to someone that was someone's cousin's husband's aunt at church or what have you. Um, but they know of that person. And now it's been in their... Subconscious that there's a person out there that could benefit from an organ and they would like to donate. So they come in, they know the name of that person, but that's where we tend to draw the line. If you are truly anonymous, essentially means that you're coming to a transplant center and saying, I want to put this out in the world, but I will probably not know who I'm donating to. Mm-hmm. And that's usually part of the course for anonymous donation is most people do not find out who they donated to. Right.
0: I would imagine that some of the most ex- emotionally- Tough cases in terms of informed consent for that individual and then for you to sort out some of the issues would be cases where it is directed it is an immediate family member mm-hmm. or somebody very close in the vicinity can you give us a case or do you have any cases that you could use to illustrate mm-hmm. some of the issues that arise there
1: sure so um It can be interesting both ways, but directed donation can bring with it this sense of urgency, this sense of immediateness, this sense of personal responsibility that it has to be me because I have the same blood group, because I'm this person's child, because I'm this person's mother, because this is my loved one, I have to step up. And so... The informed consent pathway is somewhat similar to anonymous donors, but a little bit more nuanced in saying, yes, but why? Why you? Why do you feel that urge? How many siblings do you have? How many other people have gotten evaluated? Do you understand that living donation is only one pathway of two? Do you truly understand what that means? Are you coming to us to kind of help your loved one get an organ sooner? And if the answer is, I'm here to get an organ to them sooner because I just can't see them suffer anymore on dialysis or coming in and out of the hospital, being encephalopathic, being jaundiced with liver failure, then the question is, um, do you understand how acute their need is? Do you understand the scales medically that are built up to kind of nuance out how acute a person's liver need is or how acute a person's kidney need is? And do you understand that it might not be as critical as you in, you know, intuitively or emotionally tend to think of it? So that they are able to understand where that spot is and that we want to catch a transplant recipient just after that they are eligible to be transplanted but not so far along that they are now too sick, too old, too frail to undergo an hours long surgery. So you want to have that kind of middle place where you catch them optimally and you're able to help them so that they are able to live 10, 15, 20 years down the lane. Um, It can get dicey for folks because it's their mother. Or it's their grandmother that raised them or it's their child and then the whole onus is on the parents of I have to rescue my child in order to be a good mom be a good dad or be a good sibling or a son or whatever so they can come in with this sense of absolute urgency and can actually be trying to fast-track the evaluation in order to make sure that their loved one receives an organ tomorrow and then my role is slowing down the process and saying just hold on i don't think it's that serious i don't think they're dying tomorrow i don't think that's what we're communicating i think we're telling you yes they need one they might be you know shifting towards urgency but there's still room to you know, think here, there's still room for this to make sense for you in these circumstances and if you were outside these circumstances, this act still has to make sense for you. And that has to be a guided process for most folks because they tend to think emotionally rather than intellectually when put in under that. And you had, uh, you had mentioned the term in
0: another conversation, mm-hmm. like internally coercing Right. So I themselves. sometimes
1: feel like it doesn't, when I ask the question, and I'm fairly blunt, and I ask this question every time of all the donors I meet, are you under pressure, under any cordial or any influence to go ahead and do this? And the answer is always yes, no, absolutely not. And then my job is to kind of nuance it out and say, well, tell me a little bit more about your motivation. Tell me why you want to do this. Tell me why it has to be you. Tell me what are other people's thinking around this in your family. Is there a plan B person? Are you the first of many to be evaluated? And your sister, your brother, your husband, your child is willing to be evaluated as well in order to find the most optimal donor for this uh, recipient. And I, the, the intention is to make sure that they are not psyching themselves to do something that they are not truly comfortable with because we want to make sure that there are no internal or external pressures you know pushing them towards this decision point again to the same point of we want to make sure that on the day of surgery both people are completely comfortable with that um, some people are very anxious when it's their person when it's their loved one their parent their child their spouse um, on the hook and needs a transplant so we can share information give them resources, connect them to people in the hospital, connect them to our social workers, connect them to the transplant coordinators who can help alleviate those questions, those anxieties, those middle-of-the-night thoughts that they might be having that uh, my person is dying and I, I just have to do this at all costs. Some people come to us and say, I don't care if you approve me or not. I will go ahead and donate by any means necessary. And then we have to kind of walk them back and help them realize that They are risks and they are pressures, but they are also benefits for the recipient. So simultaneously, there need to be risks and benefit analysis on your end, too. You can't subvert the process for yourself in order to think solely for the recipient. That's the recipient team's job. And in this role today, as your arbiter of efficacy of optimal health, I have to help you nuance this out. In addition to that, UNOS having kind of thought through this process and as the arbiter and the policy maker in this realm has dictated that all living donors have an um, independent living donor advocate present at every transplant center's behest. Someone who is not an official employee, someone who is not reimbursed by the transplant center, is on their payroll so that they have a discreet space to advocate or to push against living donation for any particular candidate if they feel that that is warranted. And so in cases where motivation, where anxieties, where emotions are heightened, we look to that individual to help us suss out, in addition to an ethicist, that this is okay for us to do. And um, as I said, the living donor team will meet and have a consensus around If everyone feels comfortable, then we will proceed. If there are holdouts within the team and people are really concerned, then we tend to give a cooling off period and say, your patient is ill. We understand and we recognize that. However, they're not that ill. We can take a month to have you think about this, and we would like you to take that opportunity to really mull over what you have heard we'll hear back from you and you'll come back and tell us what you think. And if you still seem just as motivated to donate, just as well prepared, just as financially cushioned, just as well thought out, then we will consider this. If we still continue to have issues, we, we can and should say no, given the fact that we think that you might be not best suited for this process. Sometimes we have to ask the hard questions of, okay, so you really want to save this person's life but you have to recognize that you might donate and the donor organ might not take in the recipient's body. So you have to tell me a little bit of what your thoughts are about graft rejection. If that were to happen, would that change your mind? Would, would you, how would you feel? And the answer is I would feel devastated, but how would that change your decision to donate, if at all? And if they say, oh, I didn't know that could happen. I didn't think that that was a big possibility everybody said the numbers are really low and this would fly. And, and you have to give them the counter argument of, sure, it could fly, chances are low, but could it happen? Absolutely. Can I Can I offer you 100% success rate? Absolutely not. Nobody on earth can, no matter how privileged or how well-esteemed or how well-functioning transplant center can, can give you 100% success rate. So you have to make peace with that eventuality. If the answer that comes back is, I would be devastated, but I'd be okay with that because I had given it the fair shot. then that is the value set that we are looking for. If the answer is, I would not be able to function or get out of bed if that happened, I would feel personally responsible, I would feel physically responsible, I would question everything. I would think, what did I eat wrong? What did I do wrong? Is my health not good enough? What have I done? So if you have that kind of a mindset, and if you feel that donors tend to be that, have that kind of value set, then we tend to say, I think you need further education around there's nothing you're going to do to optimize the chances. You have to let the chips fall where they may, medically speaking. You can't eat anything to make this a success. You can't exercise enough to make this a success. You can just take care of your body and make sure you're the healthiest person that you are in order to donate on the day of donation. But beyond that, this is not within our scope, this is not within your scope either. So if we can't control the circumstances with all the medical things we have at our behest, so you certainly cannot control anything. And if they don't tend to understand that, then yes, they are certainly not appropriate to go ahead as a living donor. Because the last thing you want for a living donor is to be healthy physically but mentally be tortured by the fact that someone sustained an injury because of something that they felt that they had done and were responsible for. Sure. That is not the mindset we're looking for. So we want to see an openness for possibilities.
0: That could even be with a really close family member.
1: Exactly. So sometimes people are conflicted because it is them and because it is their family member, and they feel like on one end they desperately need to donate, but on the other hand, the fact that it could not fly is keeping them up at night. So we need to flesh that scenario out for people. As I said, it can get dicey when it's your loved ones because you can see the immediate aftermath um, if people feel that it went south and other people would blame them in their family, we want to know that, we want to know that beforehand because we don't want to fracture your social relationships, your loved one's relationship with you on any account simply because we and you were trying to help them in the first place. Because there's just a lot of variables with transplantation in general but also with living donation even though living donation outcomes tend to be overall much better than deceased donor. Because it's a healthy organ, because we know everything about the donor and we tend to evaluate them extensively, we have more medical information upfront about what the quality of the organ will be like and we're able to better predict how that organ will function in the chosen recipient. Yet, however, even with all of that, we cannot fully predict how that will do.
0: Sure. So uh, we focus quite a bit here on living donation and it sounds like you are... Trying to do your best to make sure that any living donor has the least amount of medical, emotional, psychological mm-hmm. harm done to them is correct. that the yes. correct, uh, especially long term. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, we obviously should talk some what about the we're focusing more on the uh, donor side but we should talk about the recipient side because Mm -hmm. that's the person who is trying to go through the informed consent process but is already sick right right Um, so can you just give us a few like some of the issues that arise in that case
1: sure um sometimes we have pediatric recipients so in that sense as we do with, with all care for um kids we inform and we ask for consent for authorized permission from the parents or the guardians of the child. So in that sense, we are relying on the child's social support network and their guardianship in order to have a kind of an understanding of compliance in order to have an understanding of what they're taking on at the child's, you know, uh, behalf there. Um, That can be tricky because children do grow up And if you didn't expressly consent to something, you might not know what the situation was and how medically critical you were at that point in time and then 13 and 14 and 16 year olds tend to rebel. They want to be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to be like every other kid. They don't want to have 20 pills to take every day. They want to be able to not wear these gadgets they might be wearing. They might not, they, they want to go on a six day fishing trip. They want to go on a... Hang out know. with their friends. Exactly, And, and right. not be bothered by yes. medication. Uh, medi- or... medications, appointments, checkups, ad nauseum, multiple things to take, multiple things to consider every time you move out the door, so these are all things that we struggle with and certainly adolescent phase for pediatric recipients does pose a challenge and anticipated challenge so we when we think about people who are consenting or providing permission on behalf of their children we tend to flesh that out and say you do understand that you are doing this for someone else right so then to you falls the responsibility of helping them realize how important this is to them because at this moment in time they might not be able to you know be in enough faculties or enough capacity to understand what the contract of transplantation can look like, even though that's informal, um, do would it ever does it ever occur that
0: the parents they're so motivated, or how would this be like? They where you have questions about the parents' ability, I guess, to manage mm-hmm. that long term.
1: They are are, uh, circumstances, and we've written on this, where social support elements for pediatric cases is so crucially important in terms of kind of fleshing out what the um, parents' responsibilities and, you know, wavelength should be in terms of liaisoning with the transplant center in order to make this a success for their uh, child. Um, Parental responsibilities are kind of all-encompassing in our society today. Um, and become increasingly so, and I say this as a parent, Um, but you can sometimes feel very much under the gun and feel very anxious to rescue your child in order to optimize their future, in order to even make sure their future is a possibility at this time, because pediatric recipients are usually facing, you know, as with all recipients, uh, near certain death if they do not go through transplantation. So this can be a big intervention from all accounts taken under circumstances of last resort. So we understand that and we recognize that and are nuanced in our eligibility um, evaluations to make absolutely certain that we are recommending transplant, understanding that the parents will probably, for most cases, want to go ahead. Sure. For those families who tend to be um, more I was resistant. thinking even resistant right. or just cues Q- that. Right. Mm-hmm. Or are generally misinformed mm-hmm. or might think that this is going to be a million dollar operation and we're going to carry all the costs, might not be optimally financially cushioned for long term hospitalizations, for living years, if not months in the hospital or live very far away from the transplant center, are not able to come in on a daily basis. Then we need to kind of figure out what is going to work best for them. Um, we have transplant patients in the hospital and their folks, their uh, parents, their siblings hang out in the waiting rooms because we don't have enough pods for the moms and dads to stay overnight all the time. And then, of course, you have to pick up your life afterwards and you have to go back to work uh, even though your patient or your child is sick and in the hospital. So we need to kind of flesh out different considerations for pediatric cases, which are distinct from adult cases, because for adults, it's the simple version. It's the you understand what we're saying. Are you okay with doing this? Versus are you okay with doing this on behalf of your child whom you understand to be dying? But are you okay to take on this long-term um kind of informal agreement with the hospital to make yourselves available, to bring them up sure. at any chance at the first sign of decompensation, the first time they get, you know, wound up or their blood pressure's or they get an infection or they get the flu. You need to get all your vaccines in order. Your other children need to be fully vaccinated. You need to be absolutely certain which parties you go to, which schools you choose, which daycares you send your children to. So it's a long-term list of considerations for the parents that we, we do that with the help of multiple educations at strategic points. Most of the information is put up front when you say yes or no to transplant potential so before waitlisting a child we would have a multidisciplinary group sit down with the parents ask them what their questions are tell them what we know ask them again what their questions are tell them what we know ask them to repeat to us what they have learned today then fill in whatever else we have left out Align for them that these are the multiple faces they will be seeing throughout the years as their child grows up, that they will be on the wait list for so and so, you know, anticipated amount of period that these are the things to think about infections are a big risk as the child grows up the environment has to be controlled all of these things need to be taken into consideration and then of course you have to have them understand that there could be complications certainly for pediatric transplants there's a longer chance because you will hopefully live longer that they will anticipateably have some complications you have to explore with them that there's only as i said a bracketed advantage to one organ that they might be getting they have to unconsciously or consciously agree to retransplantation if that is in the cards for their child. So th- there are discrete uh, considerations when it comes to parent to child, informed consent or presumed um, authorization aspects. But even for adults, it can get thorny. Even for capacitated people, you can be in difficult social circumstances you could be facing a felony charge and still need a kidney transplant. You could be facing prison time and still need a liver transplant. And so those are just some of the circumstances. Or for example, you could have um, alcoholic induced liver uh, cirrhosis, which essentially means that your alcohol use was so severe that it ended up impacting your liver function. And that ended up tipping you into liver failure territory where you now need a transplant. How do you
0: handle that because that is a very, you have said that when we were talking about the donors that mm-hmm. a very important consideration is when somebody is giving up an organ, mm-hmm. whether through deceased, they've signed right. the card, or that is part of your consideration, right? The patient right. in front of you is always, Please. I'm sure, the yes. the biggest consideration, but wanting to make sure that mm-hmm. it is the best faith effort. So right. wh- how do you do that? Does a, How long would a person have to, I would presume, could not be currently mm-hmm. drinking okay. or right. engaging in that kind of, how do you... How so How do you uh, manage that? Sure. So
1: it's managed in a multidisciplinary fashion, um, as with all things, at least at the clinic and and most probably at other transplant centers as well, um, is that the social workers kind of help work with them to see what their needs are. If they have a very severe use disorder, because they can be distillations of how bad your, you know, Mm -hmm. behavior or your tendencies or your um, acts tend to be in order to, cause the disease that you are suffering from right now, and to have you develop that linkage of drink to disease, which is not intuitive for most people. Because as a culture, as a society, we tend to drink and say, how bad can it be? Everybody does it. Or how is it that I, after 10 drinks, have liver failure, and they tend to drink morning, noon, at night, and they are perfectly fine, and my grandfather smoked and he drunk.
0: And, and lived to be and, 90. And went,
1: and went on to be 90. Mm. So these are the kind of colloquial understandings that some folks have in terms of how directly The research shows that alcohol um, misuse or increased amounts can have direct effects on your liver function, for example, just one of many things that alcohol can do to your system. So they help the patient realize the directness of that linkage Mm -hmm. of act or behavior to result. Mm -hmm. And the hope is that through that they can understand that they need to give that act or behavior up. In Ohio, we have what we call the uh, Solid Organ Consortium, the Ohio Solid Organ Consortium. It's known as OSOTC. And they help ground transplant centers within Ohio in terms of what should be eligibility criteria for people who drink and who now need a liver transplant, for example. One of the many things that they do on the policy front. Um, they will help the transplant center social workers kind of build up a system of where they are assessing the risks, assessing the risks currently, assessing how likely the patient is to go back and recidivize and go back to drinking, How, how likely are they to have relapses after they have gotten an organ prospectively in order to make sure that we are matching optimal organ gift with optimal organ recipient. Um, Do you these know are any all th- best faith efforts. Right, you in all probability cannot bind someone and say absolutely you will not be found under near a bottle or a beer sure. can for years to come. The effort is to help them realize with counseling. Um, individual therapy, sometimes outpatient, sometimes inpatient alcohol use programs to kind of make sure that they have enough insight is what the social work uh, colleagues call it, have enough insight to understand that I was drinking so much, I had three DUIs, I had this happen to me. And because of that, my body is functioning. And the better the linkage in your mind is from behavior to result, the better chances of that patient not drinking at all. So yes, we do usually not transplant people who are actively drinking. Mm -hmm. The exception is what we call fulminant hepatic failure, where they suddenly absolutely tank. And come in acutely decompensated, are in the ICU and are on the verge of death. And based on their current medical need and the acuity, uh, the urgency of how soon they need to liver, um, there might be a transplant with somewhat understanding from them that they were drinking and they will not be able to do so afterwards. Mm-hmm. But we also want their caregivers to fully understand that this is what they were doing because some people are closet drinkers and their spouses and children and family and folks are beyond mystified how this could have happened to their person because they were not socially openly drinking that much. Mm -hmm. However, they were imbibing a huge amount. Um, so we. Ask well, there's such their... a huge
0: family dynamic right, around right. drinking. So to...
1: exactly. So we tend to have a little stringent criteria in terms of, and most transplant centers are very conservative in this realm, because of the risk to relapse, because we want to make sure that a scarce resource and one so aptly given and one at huge expense to whether deceased donor or to a living donor is put to the best medical benefit possible for the longest time possible so that the recipient can benefit for it for a longer period of time. So we tend to do all of these things proactively to, to kind of help assure the recipient that it's not judgment on our part, sure. but really medical rationale that demands that we make sure that they are optimally placed to receive a liver transplant, for example, so that they can benefit from it long-term.
0: Well, and also I would think because it is such a stressful thing to undergo mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. and if stress could be one of the factors right. in people's exactly. drinking, yes. you want to yes. make sure for their own sake Exactly. That,
1: so our social workers tend to work with these people extensively. Um, they are apt to say... They've been working really diligently. We are almost there. I need one more month. I need two more months for this person to truly realize and come full circle and understanding that this is what caused my disease. Um, or say, this person is not engaging. This person is not going to AA meetings. This person is continuing to drink, and we can continue to work with them. But six months, year down the lane, if they continue down the path of kind of having that behavior and are upfront and are unwilling to give it up, then then they might not be the most suitable for transplantation. Because you have to, all teams have to recommend from their point of view, from their unique Um, discipline's point of view, a person for transplant, and when all uh, multidisciplinary teams at the transplant committee Decide and recommend that this person is good to go only then are they usually um, Waitlisted because you can't waitlist someone some people drink on the waitlist So then they are brought back they are taken off the waitlist or are made inactive and they undergo treatment They undergo IOPs is what we call them. They undergo AA meetings. They meet with a counselor They have multiple things happen so that we assure ourselves and we let them know that this is why They need an organ in the first place in order to kind of match benefit to benefit.
0: When you say it's determined they're drinking on the wait list, are they monitored more closely? Yes. Yeah, in terms Uh, of Medical
1: testing, um, urine testing, all of those things are done regardless because, um, you know, urine analysis will show you so much more not just about your diet and what constitutes it, but also how your kidneys are working and how they are kind of absorbing the impact, let's say, of liver disease. Also tell you a lot about what the liver is excreting out, what is no longer able to metabolize on its own. So those tests are done uh, part of the course anyway. So that's why patients who are on the wait list and who are kind of diseased, kind of on the brink of transplant, but have yet not received their organ are always kept under close scrutiny in order and reviewed extensively so that the team is aware of what is going on with them.
0: So I wanted just to thank you again for coming. This has been extremely informative and before we finish up I wanted to ask you Mm -hmm. is there anything else you would like to tell us about organ donation or Um, you know, the organ recipients that you haven't told us or just maybe tell us a little bit about your current research and what you see as important ethical issues in this area.
1: Sure. Um, First of all, thank you for having me. Um, Mine is a unique role within the transplant center, Um, something which speaks to the resources that are put towards the betterment of patients at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, All transplant centers do not have a dedicated transplant-specific ethicist at their behest. Sometimes they have ethics committee members, sometimes they have invested uh, uh, physicians, nephrologists, hepatologists that kind of work in this role. Sometimes they lean on their independent living donor advocate to kind of help flesh out some of the things that ethics might bring to the table in terms of transplant ethics considerations in specific instances. Um, My current research focuses on motivations of living donors. It's something I've always been fascinated by, Um, and we we do, as I said, quite a fair bit in terms of our living donor programs, both for kidneys and uh, living livers, so I'm looking into that. Um, current work also includes because I'm on the region as a regional representative, as a volunteer person who is representing Region 10, which uh, constitutes Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan, um, in, at the UNOS Ethics Committee nationally. Uh, We talk about all the emerging issues that ethics might bring to the table in terms of shifting geography allocation, for example, something which is a process that is undergoing right now. We uh, talk about vulnerable populations which might be advantaged or somewhat disadvantaged based on shifts in policy. We talk about um, children versus adults, women versus men, um, how to think about people's uh, need in one sphere versus the other. Uh, we also think about intellectual disabilities and people who are socially um, not optimally placed to have transplants and might have a multiple social or financial barriers in front of them before having full access, if you will, in terms of transplant needs. So we tend to think about all of that. Um, in addition, it is our mandate to kind of make sure that people fully understand and we kind of bust the myths if you will in terms of people's understanding about what organ donation can look like and kind of shed more light on the fact that most people tend to think that if you're an organ donor or if you register as an organ donor, your care at the end of life would be distinctly different than that of a non-organ donor. That is absolutely not the case. There's actually uh, an acute focus, and multiple people in the hospital will be actually looking at what eligibility criteria uh, even a registered organ donor can undergo in order to make sure, absolutely, absolutely make sure that, one, they vocalized through a registration card, through their living wills, through their healthcare power of attorney, to their loved ones that they wanted to donate. And after that, whether the organs that they have to donate would be in the most beneficial for recipients to receive. So both those things tend to go hand in hand in order to make eligible organ donation a, a priority. And, um, I think it's a great service for people to do for others, especially as we look to the, as I mentioned, 113,000 people waiting on national waiting list for multiple organs, something to consider for the young and for the old. Um, and our role is, I guess, to educate and make sure that we are being We are being equal in our delivery for access to transplantation. We are being thoughtful about informing the consent process at multiple points, making sure that people have uh, the leverage, the educational know-how, and the wherewithal to ask all the relevant questions of us. Mm -hmm. But the vulnerable populations, the motivation questions are kind of key in terms of my understanding of transplantation and uh, even though there's work being done in other transplant centers along these realms, it's a uh, focus of mine at this point.
0: Yeah, it would be nice maybe sometime to have you back and talk specifically about some of those issues like with intellectually handicapped people. or Sure, sure, um, that would my pleasure. Yeah, some of the vulnerable mm-hmm. populations. Well, thank you again. Oh, no worries, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Bioethics, a podcast brought to you by the Cleveland State Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion. Produced by faculty member Tony Nicoletti in conjunction with the Center for Instructional Technology and Distance Learning. For more information about the Department of Philosophy and Comparative Religion course offerings, please visit our website at csuohio.edu or call 216-687-3900.